0: Thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of the MBIT podcast. And I'm your host, Seamus Madan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now I am 16 years old and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn. And I'm interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now back to the show. Today, we have an amazing guest on the podcast, Molly Wood, who is the co-host of the This Week in Startups podcast with Jason Calacanis and a recent climate investor over at Launch. Molly was a former senior editor over at CNET and the co-host of the Buzz Out Loud podcast, executive editor over at CBS and host at Marketplace. So first off, thank you, Molly, for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thanks. I'm happy to be here, Seamus. Seamus. Thanks for introducing me to a great company via your podcast. Like it's all coming full circle already.
0: (laughs) Yeah, already. I appreciate you taking the time. Let's start off here with your extensive career in the journalism industry. What was your first experience with journalism? And then when did it
1: hit you that you want to do this for the next couple of decades? So I went to college for creative writing originally and was studying creative writing for about a year and a half in college and was sort of maybe even actually just my first year was already having this creeping feeling that this was not going to be a job. And also that as a lot of the writing I was studying was fiction And I just didn't have that much to say. I wasn't inventing stories in my mind in that way. I had a professor tell me, you're a great writer. You just don't have anything to talk about. And so I was thinking at that moment, I better drop out of school and travel the world and get some adventures or something. But then I actually met this woman who was the editor-in-chief of our daily school newspaper. And she started talking to me about about the journalism program. And I realized there are a million stories happening every day that I can tell and sort of switched my major to journalism myself became the editor in chief of that daily newspaper while I was in school and just immediately knew that this was the path this was the best way because everybody else's stories are so interesting and all you have to do is talk to them
0: right. and write it down
1: <laughs> it's like the easiest job in the world in some ways so i my first job out of college was the associated press i ended up at cnet i ended up in the bay area in 1999 which was like the height of the dot com tech boom so ended up covering technology, which was just a lucky accident. And so ended up in the tech industry, business, technology. We were also sort of inventing new mediums, even as we were reporting on them. So CNET, we had the one of the first commercially successful podcasts on the web. We created a video portal at the same time YouTube was being built. Like it was sort of all, and actually right in there is when I met Jason. So it's been, I've known him for a really long time. Went from CNET to the New York Times where I did a column and video series for them, and then Marketplace on National Public Radio, which is of course a business and economic show. And that I think is where all of that kind of tech and business adjacent reporting really turned into a really strong body of economic reporting, but also where I started covering climate and climate solutions.
0: Gotcha. And when we're speaking of the Buzz Out Loud podcast, which ran for over seven years, you have built one of the strongest communities through that podcast where there are still listeners from the show that have followed you through other roles. When I was doing uh, some research before the podcast, I came across a transition video from your marketplace to launch. And there were people still in the comments who were talking about, who are OG listeners talking about Buzz Out Loud, and they were with you for over a decade. Now I was talking to Paige Doherty the other day and how podcasting can really build a community that you just can't grow on articles or other platforms like TikTok. So how did you start building that community and what was that journey like?
1: Yeah, that audience is incredible. And literally in the last year, created an archive project of every episode of Buzz Out Loud, which again, aired from 2005 to 2011. So it's been over for well over a decade and they just did an archive project. I mean, it really is phenomenal. And I think all credit to my co-host, Tom Merritt, for... I had been a very traditional journalist. My first job was the Associated Press. A lot of your stories didn't even have bylines. Like You couldn't be more removed from your audience as that kind of journalist. And CNET was really doing a lot of experimenting with forums and live chat. We were actually doing this crazy thing where we would stream our podcast and have a live chat at the same time, which was magical and brand new back then. But it was really Tom who pushed me to, he was like, you got to get in the forums. you have to be talking to the audience. We started putting the audience on the show in the form of voicemails. Ah. And I say all the time that he pushed me out of the ivory tower and into the realization that your audience is just your your homies. Like it's just your friends. You're just, especially in tech at that time, it was such a new kind of niche part of the economy. The audience was clearly way smarter than me in many respects and so it it just became this sort of like collaboration and i really do think that having your audience on your show treating them like experts realizing that you're in a conversation instead of like a lesson is really the key to that but there is something magical and i'm still not maybe it's just that you're speaking off the cuff and we would respond to the we'd have a live chat going we'd respond in real time that still is like my magical multitasking skill is to be able to <laughs> see somebody <laughs> chatting over here while i'm talking over here and bring them into it But I think it, your audience becomes your co-host and then they become your army, your internet army.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It's actually a strategy that Nick and Jack, I was talking to Nick the other day over at Robinhood Snacks or now T-Boy podcast that they employed in the past couple of years where they'll start having listener recommendations or they'll start shouting out their listeners at the end of the show. And Mm -hmm. it's something that allows the listeners to connect to the hosts in a way that wasn't
1: able to happen before. Yep. Exactly. They become, they're real people. They're exactly. not an audience. They're real people. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. When I've talked to VCs on their journey, the topic of pattern recognition has come up more than once where they're able to identify patterns between winners and failures. So over the decades in journalism, what are some of the patterns that you've picked up and
1: why are they important to know? That's a great question. I definitely credit pattern recognition with being the key to the whole thing, whether it's journalism or venture capital. I think you could probably break patterns into a couple of different buckets, right? There would be technology patterns that enable certain businesses to be born. We talk a lot about Uber and the the sort of cohort of companies that were only enabled by 4G and mobile. So I think being cognizant of kind of the development of a technology that's going to enable something that couldn't have existed before is super valuable, there's, of course, pattern recognition around people. And in my long experience as a journalist, like there are certain people who always turn, always end up in the same place. <laughs> Not to, I don't want to slander anybody or go out into too much detail, but it's, but you start to sort of, there is this cult of the founder, of course, and the founder is very important. And also, there is an archetype of a founder that almost never proves you wrong. And I just think you have to sort of believe what your eyes are telling you when you talk to a founder, good or ill.
0: Yeah, it's good to know. And uh, let's transition here into climate tech and your experience over at launch. So what was your
1: first experience meeting Jason? So I I met Jason in probably 2005 or 2006 when I wrote something at CNET about the company. I wrote an aside in a column that referred to one of the blogs that he ran at the time, you know, he had web Web blogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he did not care for it. And so it came my way that he was kind of agitating against me online in forums. I like to joke that I met Jason when he tried to destroy my career and drive me off the internet, which I think a number of people have had similar experiences with Jason. And (laughs) then we, I emailed him, we put it together. He came on buzz out loud. He was very gracious. And I think over the years, we just, he did me a, a solid when no one was looking. I think what I came to realize over Jay- about Jason over the years is he's a full contact guy who's a really good human being at heart. And so we I was on, I've been on this weekend startups off and on for years as part of the news roundtables. We've just really had a long history. And when he came along and was the person, I've had a lot of conversations with venture capital firms over the years. Jason was. The only one who came along and said, be an investor, don't come here and build a media platform, be my co-host on this week in tech and be a high level investor, be a capital allocator. And that was just an opportunity I could not pass up. And then when I said, I'm really into this climate thing, and that's what I want to do at our otherwise very mainstream fund that doesn't have a climate portfolio. And he said yes to that. It was a no brainer for me. Gotcha.
0: And we've seen quite a bit of journalists turn into VCs. For example, Jason, who is former web blogs, Harry Stebbings, which is the host of the 20 VC podcast, who now runs a VC firm and many others. It seems like there's a common theme here that's storytelling and meeting people and building that network early. So why did you transition into VC and then specifically climate?
1: I really, I'm not, I had been VC curious, I would say for a lot of years. I am not a hundred percent sure I would have made the switch if I couldn't come be a climate investor. I might have, but for me, it was really about, I had found around 2017 or so is when I really started diving into climate tech and climate tech solutions and really created a series around that in 2018 and just sort of got to the point with it where I was And this is actually why I'd been curious about VC for a long time is I just wanted to have boots on the ground. I wanted to be in the room where it happened and to be able to cause a more direct action. Storytelling is incredibly powerful, but it's diffuse. The impact is sort of hard to measure. It goes out. It might come back to you in the form of comments, but it's not as tangible as being able to say, I wrote you a check. And now you are building a company and you're going to hire, you're going to create jobs and have an impact on the economy and potentially on solving the climate crisis. That was just, I was like, you know what, I'm out of time to change minds. I need to get to work.
0: Yeah, totally. And we know how important storytelling is in entrepreneurship or marketing, as it allows the customer to connect with the product. And over at launch, you don't just do VC investing. But as we mentioned earlier, you're also the host of the This Week in Startups podcast. So how does storytelling apply to venture capital?
1: I think it's really valuable for people to... If you're a founder, and you're going to come to launch, and you know about this podcast... You already have walking in the door, a sense of what we know and what we don't know and who we are. And I think that's very valuable. I also, we use this show as an opportunity to learn about the VC industry in public. We're doing this VC Sunday school segment where I'm learning how to be an investor in public. And there's, I think a lot of value in that transparency and education that's just free on our podcast every week. And then the other thing that we're doing is sort of modeling the types of founders, investors, and companies that can be successful. So I have a weekly segment now called This Week in Climate Startups, where I'm talking to startups who are doing just bananas, awesome things in climate. And it's fundamentally hopeful to hear that there's a company that's regenerating coral 10 times faster than coral could grow in the wild, or that's making flour out of fungus that eats food waste so that you can have a whole new food source without agriculture. Like It's just, I think it gets people excited. And I think if you've been the person on the bench who's like, I kind of want to be an investor, maybe I want to do a startup and I don't know. And you hear all of these people saying, oh, I did this from scratch or, oh, I did this with my friends and family giving me a million dollars to invest or this thing exists and is possible that it can just give you inspiration." Totally. And we've seen the climate tech industry pick
0: up recently here a lot. Climate tech has seen 47 unicorns since 2015, with 28 of them joining in just 2021 alone. Now, collectively, they've raised $50 billion at $130 billion valuation. Now, the data is according to Halan IQ. And climate change is one of the top concerns for Gen Z. What are some metrics that you are using to find these next potential climate tech unicorns?
1: I'm really interested in using my background in the best way possible, I think is the simplest answer. So the companies that appeal to me a lot are companies with a consumer and consumer behavior focus, because I know that it it is very true and also sort of popular to say consumers don't have a role to play here. It's like a collective problem and businesses cause this. And until we have huge political change, nothing's going to happen. I actually don't think that's true. I think consumers still have a lot of power. I mean, collectives are made up of individuals. And if enough people do one thing and row in the same direction, things change. And so I'm very interested in companies that can offer the millennial or Gen Z in particular, who really wants to make a difference, a way to do that. Like, I know you'll buy it. You just need a thing to buy all about those kinds of companies that make it easier for you to decarbonize, that make it easier for you to get zero waste grocery is one of the portfolio companies that's in our accelerator right now that make it easier for you to buy used clothes, right? Or used furniture, circularity, like the idea of reuse and reusing things instead of getting new stuff over and over. I think there's really a lot of power there. I also love nerdy financial tools. (laughs) <laughs> like bring me this is the marketplace talking right bring me the thing that incentivizes the flow of money through a weird combination of fintech and metric i love that stuff because i actually think that's where you have these twin pillars of power if you can move a lot of money and do that through responding to maybe risk and metrics that didn't previously exist that's that's very impactful
0: I agree. I definitely that makes a lot of sense, especially being able to use that cash flow and put it towards a climate sustainability project. But how do you go about measuring the impact of the investments you're making in the long run?
1: That one—it's funny. I'm six months in, and that is the top of my goals list right now. Is to figure <laughs> out what my goal is for our climate syndicate. Is it right. gigatons? Is is that too simple? Is it too simple to say? My investments removed this many tons or gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere. Did I incentivize a behavior change that I can measure? I mean, certainly I want to measure it in terms of my returns. I'm not doing this to lose money or even have two X returns. Like I would love to create the next climate unicorn. That's unquestionably one of my goals, but I would be open to your audience's ideas for how to create that kind of dashboard of measurements that's it's funny that you say that because that's like the thing that's keeping me up now i'm like how am i gonna how am i gonna count this right. in 10 years which is of course the length of time yep. that my success will be measured on
0: yeah i'll make sure to tap into the audience see if they have any thoughts and
1: i'll send them over to you if they do yeah tell me if you switch <laughs> i mean honestly if somebody just switched away from instacart to zero waste grocery delivery with each spring in five years great right win. <laughs> i'll count that as a win and speaking of climate
0: sustainability, we fossil fuels is a big topic. And on the How We Survive podcast, you've talked a lot about lithium ion and replacing fossil fuels with batteries and the ways we could possibly do that. And mm-hmm. I'm a full believer of using electric cars and batteries over burning fossil fuels. However, it isn't as clean as a process as for the environment, as most people might think. So I think this is according to Wired that approximately like a half a million gallons of water per ton are used in the mining of lithium. And in Chile, Salar, mining activities consume like 65% of uh, the region's Water supply, which is impactful on local farmers. And in addition, this does cause some pollution to the environment in the water and in the air. Now, given it is significantly less than fossil fuels, but do you think there is a way to be 100% sustainable without having these negative side effects during the process? I think there
1: is no universe in which resource extraction is 100% clean. There are better ways to do it. And actually, so the podcast you mentioned was the last big project that I did. For Marketplace, an eight episode series on battery technology and attempts to create a domestic supply of lithium, which hopefully could be one of the ways to clean this up. You mentioned the solars in South America. That's that is a terrible process where they're trying to where they're extra, basically like bubbling up water, letting it evaporate over 18 months or so, and extracting the lithium from this brine, salty water that's found beneath the earth's surface, it ends up impacting fresh water tables, the ecosystem around that actually might feed on this brine, even though it's not potable by humans. So I looked at two different projects with this podcast. One was a proposed open pit mine in Nevada of the kind that we're fairly familiar with. And then projects, attempts in Southern California to... Extract lithium from hot salty what brine underneath the earth surface in combination with creating geothermal power. And everybody I talk to who does life cycle assessment and who really understands the kind of global lithium market says that if there's a way to do it, that's the best possible way. Because It's sort of complicated to explain, but in a few regions around the world, including the Salton Sea area in Southern California, they're below sea level. So they're close to this. And then all this like hot, salty water is pretty close to the surface. You can pump it up, create geothermal energy, and then process the wastewater, the brine to extract lithium and then have this like pretty closed loop. Really, about as clean as you can get, right? Renewable process. You're creating renewable energy that's actually more constant than solar and wind because the water's always hot as opposed to how the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. And then you're extracting this brine and then you're pumping that water right back underground. And so it's a pretty nice circle. I think there are going to be ways to mine lithium. Hopefully, like even the open pit mine in Nevada, it's a big open pit mine. Nobody likes that. But the truth is that anything that isn't grown is mined. And so if we're going to extract resources, there's going to be trade-offs. There's no question. And I think actually everybody in the climate space, whether they're a reporter or an activist or an investor or even a startup founder, just has to be honest about trade-offs. There's not ever going to be a perfect. There's as close to perfect as you can get. It's probably geothermal brine extraction, But, but there has to be something. There have to be solutions. And outsourcing our mining away from the United States so we can just ignore it and let it happen in horrible ways in Afghanistan, where there are big lithium deposits or the salars or in China is not better than doing it with a lot of oversight and regulation in the US.
0: Got it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. We're basically what we're trying to do is become as sustainable as possible with the resources that we have. And I think that the method you brought up is an interesting one. And to wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for the audience on climate change and climate investing?
1: I am a really solutions oriented person, which is why I got into this business. And I also, I think that it's really important to kind of change the narrative away from the size of the problem to the number of solutions. This gets a little bit to not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. I'm like everybody in the pool here, bring me every solution. I don't care if it's if you think this part's awkward or this part's not fully fleshed out yet, or this might have a downstream impact, but it's still better than the other thing. We need everything at this point. And I feel hopeful. I really genuinely do. I feel like there's just as much chance that the future could be an energy utopia uh, as the opposite. Like we might crack fusion, we might do that. And then right. every problem is solvable. We, have cracked solar right this is not there's nothing we need to innovate on like maybe we need to make panels that are more efficient but we don't need to invent anything we just need to deploy that's incredible that's a huge bullet yeah. right like it's just ready to go and then people are coming up with just phenomenal ways to to reuse waste and to regenerate parts of the environment and i just want to even if it's naive i Like there is no, we should hope for the future. Why wouldn't we? Why would we give up? That's terrible. Right. So I'm not gonna get in the pool, everybody. Let's get her done.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We got to keep that level of innovation going and make sure that future generations are all aware about climate and keep solving those problems while we're at it. Absolutely. Let's freaking go. Let's go. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to drop a five-star review down below. And thank you, Molly, for taking the time to join the podcast today. It was a pleasure.
1: Thanks, Seamus. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on.